0: It's such an honor to be here with you all this evening for this worship service and to have a chance here as we are heading into the last couple of weeks of Lent to revisit a scripture that um, some of us might have heard at the beginning of Lent or right before Lent since this story of the transfiguration usually appears in the lectionary on that last Sunday of Epiphany before Ash Wednesday. We hear at the beginning of this passage that um, eight days after Jesus has told his followers that he has to undergo great suffering and rejection, that he has to be killed and then will be raised from the dead, he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. And when he gets there, he goes off to pray and the three disciples collapse in exhaustion and start to doze off. We can imagine that what happened next must have felt to them like a strange dream. Was that Jesus over there with his face shining bright, talking with Moses and Elijah? I think first it's helpful to acknowledge this is a strange story. It sounds more like a dream than reality. And the truth is for us, it's really hard to imagine what is described here, that everything about Jesus began to shine, his face and his clothes. It might help to remember that it's not the first time something like this has happened in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to meet with God, He comes back with his face radiating such light that the Israelites can't even bear to look at him. This story of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountaintop, his conference with Moses and Elijah, and this voice from God coming from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen. Listen to him. This story was so important to the early followers of Jesus that it is found in three of the four Gospels. And it's important for a few reasons. It affirms our claim that Jesus is God's beloved Son, the Messiah. It exalts him above the law, represented by Moses, and the prophets, represented by Elijah. And it also foreshadows Jesus' death and resurrection. In Luke, we hear that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. When we reflect on this story, all of this is what we want to hold on to, just like Peter wants to pitch a tent and hold on to this event. It is the glory of what happens on the mountain that we cling to But there is another story that all three of the gospel writers place immediately after the transfiguration, when Jesus and his disciples come down the mountain into the valley below. It turns out that while they were on top of this mountain basking in glory, there were nine other disciples who had been left behind in the valley, staring helplessly. a father and his son trapped in agony the writer and pastor debbie thomas describes that scene vividly in the valley a boy writhes in the dust he drools he cannot hear and his eyes wide open feral see nothing but darkness Around him a crowd gathers and swells, eager for spectacle. Scribes jeer, and disciples wring their hands in shame. Frauds, someone yells into the night. Charlatans, where's your master? The scribes ask the disciples an umpteenth time. Why has he left you? We don't know, the disciples mutter. Gesturing vaguely at the mountain. Panic wars with exhaustion as they hear the boy shriek yet again. He flails and his limbs assault his stricken face. A voice rends the night. This is my son, a man cries out as he pushes through the crowd to gather the convulsing boy into his arms. Everyone stares as the father cradles the wreck of a child against his chest. Please, he sobs to the stars. Please, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Today's passage tells two stories one about the glory of God's presence, and the other about the agony of God's absence. In her reflection on this text, Debbie Thomas invites us to consider other places in our lives and in the world where glory and agony, God's presence and God's absence, exist in such close proximity. We might point to communities whose resources create the glories of opportunity and possibility, while in other communities, poverty, warfare, and violence create an agonizing daily struggle. These disparities exist across the globe, but they also exist right here in our city. And yet we also know that the most comfortable among us— know too well the agony of God's absence when faced with isolation and loneliness, physical and mental illness, broken relationships, and inexplicable hardships, while those with little material resources know the glory of God's presence through love and family, cultural traditions, and community support. Regardless of who we are or where we live, we all know something about the proximity of glory and agony of God's presence and God's absence. Reflecting on the glory of the mountaintop and the agony of the valley, Thomas concludes, here is the great challenge to the Christian life, the great challenge to the church, the body of Christ. Can we speak glory to agony, and agony to glory? Can we hold the mountain and the valley in faithful tension with each other, denying neither, embracing both? Can we do this hard, hard work out of pure love for each other so that no one among us, not the joyous one, not the anguished one, not the beloved one, not the broken one, is ever truly alone? Near the end of February, we lost one of our modern-day saints when Paul Farmer died unexpectedly at age 62. Many of you know, I'm sure, Dr. Farmer was a physician and public health expert. He founded the organization Partners in Health, which brings quality medical care to developing countries. He was a passionate and relentless advocate for the least of these, working directly to advocate for and provide the same quality of health care for the poor that we would want for our own family members. Farmer had a particular gift for holding together the glory and the agony of modern medicine, the glory of medicine's extraordinary capacity to treat all kinds of maladies through innovative procedures and drugs, and the agony that barriers of wealth and education and geography prevent such treatments from reaching some people and populations. Farmer saw clearly how the health system worldwide creates obstacles that make it difficult for doctors and their patients to achieve the level of health they want. In Mountains Beyond Mountains, the book he wrote Profiling Farmer, Tracy Kidder tells of a talk Farmer gave to a group of Harvard medical students. Hearing him speak, Kidder writes, made it feel for a moment like he could see into Farmer's mind. It seemed like a place of hyper-connectivity, he said. At moments like that, I thought that what Farmer wanted was to erase both time and geography, connecting all parts of his life and tying them instrumentally to a world in which he saw intimate, inescapable connections between the gleaming corporate offices of Paris and New York and a legless man lying on the mud floor of a hut in the remotest part of remote Haiti. Of all the world's errors, he seemed to feel the most fundamental was the erasing of people the hiding away of suffering. My big struggle, he said, is how people can not care, can erase, can not remember. This story of Jesus' transfiguration when it's in the lectionary it marks a transition between the season of epiphany that post-christmas season when we're catching glimpses of god's presence in the world and then the pre easter season of lent that we're in now when we are accompanying jesus and one another on the journey toward the cross this transition is captured in this story between the glory on the mountaintop and the agony in the valley where a suffering child is in danger of being erased, forgotten, abandoned. Thankfully, just in time, Jesus arrives to hold them together, the mountain and the valley, the glory and the agony. He returns to the disciples he had left behind, and he heals the child He also demands in some pretty strong language that the disciples learn how not to abandon each other or any of God's children. I don't know about you, but I can relate to those nine disciples left behind in the valley, helplessly watching a suffering child and his distraught father, unsure how to help. We know how it feels when our desire to not just think and feel our faith, but to enact it, to live it out. We know how it feels when it seems to fall short. We feel the sting of Jesus' exasperation with those disciples who can't seem to do what he wants us to. So how do we do it? How do we speak glory to agony and agony to glory? How can we make sure that those in agony, whether they're sitting next to us in worship or they're on the other side of the world from us, escaping from a war, how do we make sure they know they are not forgotten? Not by God and not by us. This is my son, God says out of the cloud. Listen, to him this is my child the distraught father says to the crowd help him this is our task to hold together the glory of the mountain and god's presence and the agony of the valley and god's absence so how do we do it well here at richmond hill you are doing it daily Because, as you know, it starts with listening. Listening for those around us, those in our city who are crying out. Listening for what the past has to teach us, and listening for the dreams of those longing for a better future. We can listen. We can also show up, however we can. When the natural disaster hits, or the invasion comes, or the prognosis is not good, or the plan falls apart, or the heart breaks. We can ask for help when we are the one who is struggling, who is feeling the agony of God's absence. We listen, we show up, and we pray trusting that even when we are sitting in the agony of God's absence, we can ask for God's help and guidance and lean on the promise of the glory of God's presence. We come together to do this work. We stay together. And we do it all looking to the face of none other than God's own Son, who shows up at the moment when all seems lost, and who models for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, how to speak glory to agony and agony to glory, how to hold together the divine with the human, how to cling to God's presence in the best of times and in the worst. Amen. Amen.